in, in dealing, because we get a lot of questions at, at different times, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but um, I wanted to mention it real quick, just in passing. It's in the manual, and you can find it back in chapter 11 on page 72. It tells you about generational curses and protection. And the reason I talk about that is because it is so prevalent in the church that people think you have to do this and this and made it so hard to get out of these things and get things off you. Now, there's an entire industry that is built up over this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, like I said, but I'm going to hit two points real quick. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it says... Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Okay? And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Now, do you hate God? Then that does not apply to you. You get that? Now, It says, He shows mercy to those that love Him and keep His commandments. Now, that's what you're doing. Right? So, get that stuff out of your head that all this stuff is passed on down no matter what and you can't do anything about it. Because if you really figure it out and you you go into this, everybody becomes... See, if, if if this is your dad and he's got problems, right? Then you're the first generation, your children the second, and your grandchildren the third, and it goes right on down. But now, if this is true, that his sin gets passed down to you, and down to the third and fourth generation, then here you are, you're the first, right? But now, this is, you're his first generation, right? And your kids are his second. But whenever it comes to you, now you got his problem, now all of a sudden, you're him, and now your kids become the first generation, and your grandkids become the second. So eventually, everybody becomes the first, and then the third, and it goes right on down, and there'll be no end to it. Okay? Because so they would just travel right on down. Now, as long as people kept doing that. Now, watch this. In Exodus 34. Now, you've probably already heard these, if you've heard any teaching, or read any books, or any of this other stuff on it. Exodus 34, verse 7, halfway, well, let's just start at 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Now, does that take, that should tell you something right there. Will by no means clear the guilty. Weren't you the guilty that got cleared? Right? So this ain't talking about you. Right? Because this is saying that nobody can be cleared. But you were cleared. So obviously this isn't about you. And he says here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. Now, go to Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression and by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Down in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 5. Starting in verse 9, it says the same thing halfway through. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers under the, upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, but here's one that they never tell you. Exodus chapter 18. Starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye? In other words, why are you doing this? that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, 
The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What is he saying? He's going back to the generational curse thing. He's going back and saying the, the fathers are doing things and the children are reaping the benefits or the consequences. Now watch, I'll prove it to you. He says, As I live, saith the Lord God. And whenever God says that, He is serious. Right? As I live, saith the Lord God, You shall not have occasion to use, or anymore, to use this proverb in Israel. In other words, it stops. He goes on. Behold, all souls are mine, As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and has not eaten upon the mountains, neither lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and has kept my my judgments, to deal truly, he is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. Now, if he beget a son, that is a robber. Now, what he's going on to say here is, shall the father... Reap the consequences of a bad son? No. Then he goes on and says, in verse 14, Now lo, if he beget a son that sees all of his father's sins. So now you're talking about a father that's sinning and the son doesn't sin. Right? Which he has done and considers and doeth not such like. In other words, if he sees his father's sins and he doesn't do them that hath not eaten upon them, and he goes through this whole list again, if he doesn't do all of those things, he says, in verse 17, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, has walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. Now he just said, this whole chapter is about this generational curse thing. And the whole time he's saying, you will not use this proverb anymore. You're not going to say that anymore. It doesn't apply anymore. Because every person will answer for themselves. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're not responsible for somebody else's sin. You're responsible for your own. So when a person says, well, you know, my my drinking habit is just a generational curse. And I can't help it because it came down to me and my grandfather. It's not a generational curse. It's a generational sin. Stop it. You understand that? It's not something that came on you because you couldn't help it. Nobody held that bottle to your mouth or that glass to your mouth and poured it down you. You chose to. And when you chose to, you entered into sin. And that's what brought your troubles. Do you understand that? So quit trying to put it off in your granddaddy and your great-granddaddy and all these other things. Now, even if they were bad examples, you are still responsible to live right. You don't sin for anybody else and nobody else sins for you. Quit blaming them. Stand up. Be responsible. Do what you're supposed to do. Live right and quit using excuses. And never again try to put somebody else's sin on somebody else down the line. So if you use this generational curse from this day forth and try to say, Oh, well, that's a generational curse. The reason you're doing that is because here, we'll break that thing off of you. You can't break a generational curse. 
You know, you know how, and I'm talking about you breaking it for somebody else. You know how the person breaks it? Stops sinning. You get that? You can't break it off of them. They have to stop sinning. They have to stop what they were doing. Now, if I watched my dad, and he drank, and then I drank, he's not responsible for my drinking, even if I saw him. He may have been a bad example. But still, it's my responsibility. Do you get that? So don't ever... See, there's no need to go in and try to find somebody's generational curse because it doesn't matter anyway. What you need to find out is, okay, what are you doing? Well, i got a problem with drinking. All right, stop it. Simple as that. We can pray with you. We can break it, right? If you choose to break it, but what it comes down to is you've got to decide. It's sin. You're not in bondage because something jumped... Yeah, you don't walk in front of a bar... And an alcoholic demon jump off on you and all of a sudden you just can't help yourself. You have to go into that thing and order something and put it to your mouth. Isn't that right? It doesn't just jump off on you. So, that should end the discussion on generational curses. Amen? Alright, okay. Make sure. Now, let's move. Now, alright. Yeah, we can do this. <laughs> i got 27 minutes. We can do this. I can preach three sermons in 27 minutes. So we're okay. <laughs> Somebody unplug that clock and we will do fine. Now, now, how many... Well, in the Bible, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being... A, there's a word that they give Him. And that word is a Greek word, which most Christians now know as paraclete. Okay? Now, the word paraclete means, as you may know, one called alongside to take hold of with against. Now, that's a long, drawn-out word. But, to shorten it, you've probably heard it said something like this. The paraclete is one called alongside to help. Okay? So, the Holy Spirit is one called alongside to help us. Right? Now, if you believe that, isn't that what the Bible says? He is our helper. Again, the backwards church. Why do we always insist on turning things around and doing them backwards? Because, and I'm not giving you an answer, I'm just, because I don't know either. Okay? But, we do. We always try to say, well, we're just going to follow the Holy Ghost. Okay? That sounds good, but it's another way of saying, I just don't want any responsibility, and whatever He does, He can do, and I'm just here, and I'm just going to witness it. Right? He works through you. See, that's the biggest difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Through the Old Covenant, God fought for you. In the New Covenant, He fights through you. Right? But if you don't fight, He doesn't fight. Why did God allow this? Because you did. Well, I, I don't believe that. Yeah, whatever you bind on earth, He will bind in heaven. Where does it start? Here. Why did He allow it? Because you didn't bind it here first. He's waiting on you to bind it before He can bind it. Why? Because the earth... He gave to the sons of men, the Bible says. The earth belongs to the Lord, but He gave it to men. And it says the same thing in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1-8. through 8. He goes on, and it says that they glorified God, that God gave such power unto men. See, He gave you power, but you've got to use it. If you don't use it, it's not going to be done. Quit blaming God and saying, why does God do this? Why didn't He do that? Why does He allow all these things to go on? It's because you allow it. Simple as that. It's your responsibility. Now, if I was to come up here... Well, let me get back on the Holy Spirit thing where we're talking about following the Holy Spirit. I thought, thought I was getting off of that, but not. We say we're going to follow Him. But now think about... Let me give you a... a, let me, a matter of fact, take your Bible. Because you've got to see this for yourself. Because if you don't, you won't believe it. 
If I can show you to it's already in your Bible, you know I didn't make it up. You know, my job is really pretty easy because all I do is read Scripture. Isn't that right? That's really all I do. I mean, I don't. it's not deep, weird, you know, super spirit. It's just read Scripture and basically I just read it and tell you it means what it says. Right? Which makes my job pretty easy when you get down to it. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to Mark. Mark chapter 16. Okay, Mark 16. Start in verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Now, notice this. Two times in this verse, or in in this passage. Once up in verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Right? Then you go down to verse 20. Last half. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Now two times we see two things talked about here. Both times it's referring to signs. Both times it says that signs are following the believers. Isn't that right? Now let me ask you this. Can you... Now think, this isn't a trick question, but think very specifically. Can you... In and of yourself, heal, raise the dead, or anything else like that. Can you do it? No. Who does it? Jesus, the Spirit of God, right? He, the, even Jesus said, I don't do the works I do. The Father in me, He does the works. Isn't it right? The Spirit work, does the works, right? So we, I already told you before, every miracle, every healing, every dead raising, everything that's ever been done, it was the Spirit of God that did it. It wasn't you, it wasn't anybody else, it wasn't a different spirit, it was the Spirit of God, and that Spirit of God lives in you, Right? So the Spirit of God does the actual miracle, the actual healing, right? You don't do it. You just lay the hands, right? And you believe and you speak or whatever it is, but He does the actual fixing, right? Now, think about this. Because here He says, first off, these signs shall follow them that believe. Then it says, and the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So they went in, they preached, and signs followed them, right? So they went in and did something, laid hands on the sick or whatever it is, and the signs, healing, miracles, all that stuff, followed them. Right? So signs follow the believer. Right? Now, if signs follow the believer, and who's doing the signs? We're laying hands, but the Holy Spirit's doing the work. Right? Now, think about this. I mean, really, if you think, if you get this, it will change your life, I promise you. If we're going and preaching, if we're laying hands on the sick, and the Holy Spirit is doing the healing, and the healing is the sign, and the sign is following the believer. So here you have the person, the Christian, they lay the hands, the sick person's there, whatever it is, the Holy Spirit does the work, so there's the sign. Right? Now, so where's the Christian? Here. Right? Now, where is the 
explain that. Where's the Holy Spirit? Let's see, signs are here. And the Holy Spirit's right here doing them, right? So you're going, Christian here, Holy Spirit here. Who's following who? You're following the Holy Spirit or is He following you? If you're doing the work and signs are following and He's doing the signs, is He following you? You see that? Do you get it? Because once you realize that wherever you go, He goes. But if you don't go, He don't go. So who's in control? You understand, I hate to use that word because it scares people. But I mean, who determines where the Holy Spirit goes today? You do. Because He's in you. You get that? I know you probably don't like that. And you're probably thinking, He's near heresy. That's what they said about Jesus too. Isn't it right? But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is in you. He follows you. You preach, He confirms with signs following. You know, well, I'm just going to follow the Holy Ghost. Then you're going to go nowhere. Because He's waiting on you to move. He says, you go into all the world. He didn't say, find out where I am and follow me. He didn't even say, follow me. Isn't that right? He didn't even tell anybody there at that point. Listen, when you get filled with the Spirit, just, just follow, the, follow the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. He said, you go into all the world. You preach the gospel. You heal the sick. You, lay, you do all these things. And as you do that, guess what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to go with you. And as He goes with you, He's going to do the works. And you're going to have signs following you. But if you don't go, you can't have signs follow. Isn't that right? Do you get that? Now, think about this. Because here, here's where I'll prove it. The Bible says to be... Now, I already told you, He does the fixing. Right? Now, what do you do? You lay hands. But what is that called? That's called being a doer of the Word and not just a hearer. Right? So you have to do the Word. And when you do the Word, He does the work. Right? You do the Word, He does the work. You do the Word, He does the work. Right? Now, I told you before, He was called the paraclete. The one called alongside to help. Now, when I was coming up here, if they didn't, now, I'm not a mechanic or an electrician or any of that kind of stuff. Right? But, let's pretend for just a minute that I, that I am. And let's say when I was coming up here, they found out that I was uh, an electrician. And they said, you know, we've been having some electrical problems in the church. While Brother Curry's here, we ought to just see if he can look at that and maybe fix it up for us while he's here. We'll just, you know, we'll just have him do that job too while he's here. Okay, so I get up here and, and I got, you know, my son with me and, and, and I'm here. Now, we get in here and he says, now, Brother Curry, would you look at this? And I really wish you would rewire this room for us while you're here. And I say, okay, well, all right. So I, I start walking around, and my helper, John, my son, he's with me. My helper's with me, right? And so we're just walking around. I'm like, okay, we're going to need uh, so many rolls of such gauge of wire and that kind of stuff. And, and, and we're going to need the, the, the ladders here, this, you know, the 12-foot ladders, 10-foot, whatever we're going to need. We're going to need all this stuff. And John's walking along, and he's making notes, right? Okay, we're going to need three rolls of wire, and we're going to need the, the ladder, and then we're going to need... And then we get down here, he'll say, what about that there? You're going to need those, uh, the conduits to go around. Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't see that. He writes down the conduit. Why? Because he's a good helper. Right? He's doing his job. He's with me. We're looking at this stuff. We're putting stuff down. Now, at some point, I'll say, all right, here's all the tools. Get it all out. I'm going to run down here, grab us a bite to eat. I'll bring it back. When I get back, have everything ready. I go off. I come back. When I get back, he's got the wire laid out. He's got the tools, the crimpers, the little connectors, everything laid out right where I need it. And then we put the ladder out, we start going around, and as I go around, I get up on that ladder, and when I need something, if he's a good helper, whenever I need it, I'm going to go, okay, I need the, now if he's a good helper, before I tell him what I need, it's in my hand, right? 
Because he can... Now, notice, he's not looking at what I'm doing. He's seeing where I'm going and he's lining up the things I need ready for when I get there. Right? Why? Because he's a good helper. So here I am going through them. You know what I've done? Now, when we get done, who are they going to give the check to for doing the work? It comes to me, right? Because I'm the electrician. He's the helper. Right? It's my responsibility to pay him or whatever it is, but they pay me because I'm the doer. Right? I'm the, I'm the, the one that's actually having to do it. Now, the Holy Spirit, for some reason, the church wants to make the Holy Spirit the electrician, and we want to be the helper. When the Bible says that He is the helper, and we're the doers of the Word. Right? He is to help you. Why do we keep trying to make Him the doer when He's the helper? You see how we get that backwards? He's not the doer. He's the helper. And whenever you do the Word, He helps by doing the work. Do you get it? He's your helper. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's not the one that you're just kind of, okay, where's he at? Okay, I'm going to follow over here and I'm going to follow over there. And I'm going to do, no. No, you be busy about your father's business. And he has provided a helper called the Holy Spirit to accomplish whatever you put your hands to. Amen. You get it? When you get a hold of this. Now, let me read a scripture to you. Oh, I'm sorry, not a scripture. Let me read, um, it's actually in your manual. I have a book in here that we carry called John G. Lake, Apostle to Africa, written by Gordon Lindsay. In the front page of that book, in the very introductory section, it says this. Gordon Lindsay is writing, and it's called Some Personal Memories of Dr. John G. Lake. Gordon Lindsay was raised up in his church. It's where he got saved, and so he knew Dr. Lake. And he says, he wrote this about him. He says, it is an underestimate to say that the ministry of John G. Lake was unusual. He possessed the remarkable ability to create faith in his hearers. Ministers who sat under him soon found that they too had a ministry of faith that resulted in healings of a most startling character. Since it was impossible for Dr. Lake to minister personally to the great numbers that sought his services, he usually had a band of lay ministers and workers, called divine healing technicians, laboring with him to answer calls to which he was unable to attend. One of the writers, Gordon Lindsay's, first memories of a healing was that of a woman who was instantly healed as a result of the prayers of one of Dr. Lake's ministers. Not Dr. Lake, but a guy that worked with him. The woman was a Mrs. Watts, wife of a prominent officer in a local church. This woman had become seriously ill and the physicians decided that her only hope was an immediate operation. The cost of the proposed operation was well beyond the family's financial resources at the time. However, in desperation, the husband went to a local bank and arranged for a loan to pay for the cost of the operation. In the meantime, the writer's mother, who had great faith in divine healing, felt a burden to praise for the family. She went to the sick woman and encouraged her to believe God for healing. But her church, the woman's church, had taught against divine healing. And in fact, the woman herself had not taken any interest in this teaching. But as is often the case when desperate illness or death faces one, they are inclined to alter their views. Well, thank God it's... You know, it's good to get smart at some point. He says, The lady consented that prayer should be offered for her healing. Mother then took the next train to Portland in hope of getting Dr. Lake to come to pray for the woman. However, when she arrived there, he was not available, and as the need was urgent, Mother requested that one of the other ministers go. The good brother who went did not have much of a knowledge of social amenities. Right? He didn't know how to act around people. Right? God bless him. It says, in fact, he was a rather rough and ready preacher, hardly to be distinguished for his ministerial polish. 
So what I'm reading is, I'm thinking, I like this guy already. I don't know anything else about him. But his faith in God was strong, and though he had acquired a rather brusque, unceremonious manner of dealing with the sick, it produced results, even though his mannerisms sometimes offended people of fastidious taste. Now, can you kind of get a picture of what this guy's probably like? He says, when mother and this preacher arrived at the home of the sick woman and he had opportunity to observe her critical condition, he lost no time in telling her that the sickness was the work of the devil. Now, she probably didn't like that much either. right? She was the wife of a prominent officer, probably looked up to, uh, thought well of, you know, a, a real social type lady. And here he looks at her and goes, oh, you got a devil. Well, that doesn't over, ever go over good, okay? especially to high class religious people. He says, after giving the woman some instructions, he proceeded to rebuke the illness with a loud, booming voice that carried through the whole house. Then, rather roughly, he told the woman that she was healed and for her to get out of bed. The lady at first hesitated to do this, but shortly, afraid to disobey. (laughs) Now think about it. She was more scared of him than she was that devil or the pain that she had been in. Afraid to disobey, she did as she was told and rose from her bed to discover to her great joy that she was made whole. The pastor of the local church was at that time very much opposed to this ministry. This miracle was the first step in convincing him of its reality. Remember, that's the church that preached against divine healing. Eventually, he became convinced of its scriptural foundation and received a notable healing himself. Hmm. Was it maybe he was teaching against divine healing because he... See, many times this teaching that we have had in the past against divine healing comes from people who couldn't get healed. They were in a position of power and rather than admit they couldn't get healed, they had to come up with reasons why God doesn't always heal so that they could keep certain status in the people's minds and not lose face, so to speak. And so they start preaching against it. He says... Incidentally, the banker who had loaned the money for the proposed operation was startled indeed a few days afterward to see the husband yeah, come to the bank to return the money. It was a testimony which caused many in the community to wonder and take note. Such were the methods used and the results obtained that gave the work of John G. Lake the prominence that it achieved. Now, a couple of things about that. First off, you notice he rebuked the illness with a loud, booming voice. Right. You said, so Craig, we've got to get loud to pray. You don't have to, but getting loud is the fastest way to stir yourself up. I've never heard two people argue quietly. Isn't that right? Why? Because they get stirred up. Now, it's the same thing. Now, getting loud, volume isn't power. But you can stir yourself up by getting loud. But once you, you may have to do that in the beginning. But once you learn how to stir yourself up, you don't always have to get loud. But you may have to do that in the beginning. I did. I had to get loud. And it wasn't fun, because I'm, I'm basically a quiet type person, kind of low-key. But I had to decide that getting that person free was worth me looking stupid if I had to, to get them free. And so I would get loud. Now, I had to learn how to be able to do it quietly, because you can only pray loud for a person in a hospital one time. Right? <laughs> you only get to pray for one, and then they escort you out if you get very loud. So I had to learn how to release the same power quietly. And... So, so there's nothing wrong with loud. In the early days of Pentecost, it was, they were known for being loud. Now, it, nowadays we've gotten dignified, right? And we have gained the 
acceptance of man and lost the approval of God. Okay, so just to let you know now. Got one more I gotta read to you here. Let's see here. <clears throat> yes. Page eighty seven of the manual. Dr. Lake wrote this, part of a sermon actually. It's called How to Enter the Will of God. There are two phases. There are two phases to entering into the will of God. The first is the surrender of our will to do the will of God. Now, if you haven't done that, you're not a Christian. Right? But that's the first phase. The second, well, let me go. Most people's conception of doing the will of God is to become a non-entity. In other words, just, well, whatever God wants me to do, I'm just going to float. And if He wants me to, He can... No, that's not God's will. He wants you to submit your will to His will and do His will. That means you have to decide by your will to accompany His will to get His will accomplished. Okay? He says, Now, it is not God's ideal for you to have to be pushed around like a machine or moved like a mechanism. Yet, that's what most people want. The other, the other aspect, the other phase is recognizing yourself as God's son and man's servant. You've heard that before, haven't you? And you add in there the devil's master. He says, I think the most wonderful exhibition of this truth that God can give us is in the fact that he gives us the Holy Ghost to use for God. Now that is almost blasphemy to some people. That he gives us the Holy Ghost to use for God. Almost sounds like a tool, doesn't it? He says, for instance, the Lord says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But if you do not lay your hands upon anyone, they will not be healed. However, if you have faith to believe you have the Holy Spirit to be used by Him and for Him, your heart and your hands will be ready. That's called being ready. He says, it is a sad thing to me that God has to go out on a special mission and hunt a soul up and wrestle with him in order to get him to do something for God. But that's exactly what most Christians want to do. Well, if God tells me, if God gives me a confirmation, if he proves it, then I'll do it. In other words, if God makes me do it, God shouldn't have to make you do anything. We ought to be chomping at the bit, so to speak, saying, God, what can I do? What can I do? Let let me do something. I'll do something. What do you want me to do? Heal that person? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll lay hands. I don't care. That's what we should be. He says, there used to be a Bible school in Ohio where they waited in continuous prayer meeting for nine months for the gifts of the Holy Ghost. I said to them, it seems to me that if you, go, if you stay around for ten years and nine months, you will miss the gifts of the Holy Ghost. But if you take off your coat and go out and use what God has given you to bless others, He will give you more. You get that? He says, you, but see, what, would you, what do we do? We want revival. So what do we do? We call a prayer meeting. And you'll pray for ten years for a, prayer, for a revival. When all you have to do to have revival is for you to get revived, begin to do the work of God, you go out on the streets, you begin praying for people, and when you get them well, they will come into the church. And when they come into the church, that's called revival. Technically, that's what we call revival. That's not revival. Okay? Revival is when you decide to go do the work of God. When the people come in, that's called evangelism. All right? But we keep waiting for a revival to blow in like some kind of cloud. And we're waiting on God to do it. And God is saying, it's not my fault. You get busy. When you get busy, then the people will come in. Isn't that right? If, if businesses apply the same principles to their markets that Christians do to their cities, 
businesses would go out of business because they would never advertise, they would never go out, they would never go door to door knocking on doors trying to get people to buy their products, none of that kind of stuff. And that's why a lot of businesses go out of business because they don't have any, any way to draw people. Yet we think, well, let's open up a church. And bless God, if they want us, they know where we're at and they can come find us. The Bible doesn't say that. It says you go out and compel them. Right? It doesn't say we sit and wait for them to come to you. They don't know you. Why should they come to you as opposed to going to the kingdom hall? They don't know any difference. They don't know if you're right and who's right and who's wrong. And they got a pretty wide choice. Right? So you've got to show the people what is true. Next. Page 85. John G. Lake's letter to Carrie Jeb Montgomery. Now... 1907 to 1913, 1908 to 1913, Lake is in South Africa. Some people start some rumors about him. That he's making stuff up, that he's spending money wrong, all that kind of stuff. So the money stops. So eventually he says, look, send somebody over here to check it out. So they send somebody over. Now, here's what this person figured out. This Reverend Stevenson came over and checked everything out. and And then he found out. And Dr. Lake wrote a letter about it. And he sent it to this woman named Carrie Jeb Montgomery, who was very well known among missionaries. He sent the letter to her. She makes copies, sends it out to all the people, so that hopefully they can squelch the rumors that start. Now, he says this. Dear Sister in Christ. Now, this was written April 22, 1911, almost 100 years ago. 95 years ago, right? Now, think about that. For 95 years, now this letter among other places, was also in the AG archives. I've been there many times, gone through all their stuff, and I mean, just spent weeks there, just about. And this letter was sitting in the archives. Anybody could have read it at any time, but nobody did. Here's what he says. Enclosed, find some letters with incidents, etc., of what the Lord is doing among us. Reverend Stevenson has arranged for us with a friend for the circulation of the letter which you find enclosed. I regard it, that letter, now he wrote a letter that is not in this, but he's referring to this letter. I regard it as a striking example of the force with which this gospel comes to people of open mind, and was pleased to have a man of his caliber concerning the work. Of course, he viewed the work on a day when the Spirit of God was moving mightily. It was an extraordinary day, therefore it's only fair to say that all of our meetings do not have the same degree of power that was in that one. Well, now that shows some integrity to even say that. He didn't have to say that. However, we praise God that He is moving strong and steady and clearly. I'm reminded to write you through the reading of Mrs. Anderson's testimony as it appears in the Triumphs of Faith, which is a a booklet, a magazine, that Carrie Judd Montgomery sent out every month. He says, I haven't a copy of a letter I wrote some time ago to a missionary by the name of Hoover at Valparaiso, Chile, on the subject of divine healing, which embodies what I regard as the secret of the aggressive ministry of healing that the Pentecostal movement of South Africa demonstrates. Now think about that. Now this man Hoover, his name was Willis C. Hoover. He was a Methodist missionary to Valparaiso, Chile. He went down there while Lake was in Africa. Lake was having an outpouring of the Spirit in Africa. Great things happening. Hoover writes him. Lake writes him back. And he says, in this letter that I wrote him back, I put what I consider the secret of our success. How did we do? How did we have the miracles that we had? And he puts that secret in the letter. Now, when I read that, I started thinking, where's that letter? I want the secret, right? I want all the letters. So I started digging. Nobody's seen it. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody has a clue what's in it. I check all the archives. I check everybody. Years later, 
I'm up in Delaware and I was preaching. And one night I stood up in this, and I preached for about an hour. And then this guy, or actually more than that, and then this guy comes to me and says, when did you find that letter? And I said, I've never found the letter. And he said, you've never seen it? And I said, no, I've never seen the letter. He goes, you've never seen that letter? And he just kept going on. I'm like, I've never seen the letter. Okay? And finally he said, well, I was a missionary to, to Valparaiso Church. I've seen the letter. It's down there. They've got it. And I said, really? I said, well, what did it say? He goes, you've never seen it. And I said, I've never seen the letter. Right? And he goes, well, that's amazing. I said, why? He says, because you preached it almost word for word tonight. Why? Because I couldn't find it. The same Spirit of God that helped Lake write it helped me preach it. And you say, what was you preaching that night? That God is waiting and the whole earth is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That we are to begin to walk like Jesus, not like disciples, like Him. You understand? Using His name, but speaking like He did. Right? Now, I said all that. Now, couldn't find out, Willis Hoover, this uh, missionary... Lake wrote to him and said, listen, get baptized in the Spirit. And he did. And as soon as he did, then the Methodist church kicked him out. So he went across the street and started the Pentecostal Methodist church. And it became the largest church in Chile. Had over 2 million members at one point. Now, and he had a great outpouring also, just by following Dr. Lake's directions. Now, see, he wasn't just involved in Africa. He helped start the, the uh, revival that was down in Chile, that went on down into Argentina, that has erupted now, and is still going on. Right? Uh, that he was part of the birthing of that. Now, the amazing thing about this is, I found <clears throat> Willis Hoover's uh, grandson. He worked at the AG archives. And it's amazing because I found this dictionary of charismatic and Pentecostal movements. And in it, there's a picture of this guy named Willis C. Hoover. And if you ever get a chance, at least look at the book. It's worth The picture is worth buying it. Because this guy looks just like Popeye. He is like a living, or not now living, but then living embodiment of Popeye. He had these liberty glasses on. He had this little grizzled gray beard. And he had this, look, had this little weird looking little hat on. And when he posed for this picture, you ought to see him. He had the, the perfect Popeye thing. You know where he has that... You know, I got all just like it. And you're just looking like, that's Popeye. You know, that's whoever drew Popeye, they saw Willis Hoover. Alright? And they just drew it down. And when you look at him, that's him. Now, what he said, let's get in this letter because I want to show you. He's going to give you the secret, even though I found out later that it was in this letter at the same time. He says this I feel, sister. Now he says, first off, I do not know that I will be able to send you a copy of that letter at this time, but at my earliest convenience, we'll have a copy prepared and send it to you. I feel, sister, that there is a step in this ministry, meaning in South Africa and the Pentecostal ministry, in advance of what the Pentecostal movement in general enjoys. In other words, we may be a little advanced in the areas of healing over what the people back in the United States are experiencing. And God has laid it deeply on my soul to present this particular phase of the exercise of the dominion of Jesus Christ. And that the secret of our success here in this ministry, he's going to tell you what it is right here, is in our teaching our workers to exercise the dominion of God through the Holy Ghost, and that he has already put it in their soul when he baptized them. So in other words, he's saying when you get filled with the Spirit, you got it. You don't have to wait. You got it. See, God doesn't just give you a gun and hold the bullets. He gives you a loaded gun when you get the baptism in the Spirit. Right? You're ready. Now, he says, 
and it's in our teaching our workers to exercise dominion God, and that he's already put it in there, so when he baptized them, while in other branches of this work, meaning back in the United States, they still follow largely the old line of intercession for the sick. Now think about that. Isn't that still what the church does? We intercede. We beg God. We try to get God to do something. We try to intercede for the sick. And he said, do you get it? He said, this is a hundred years ago. He said, we're in advance of what the United States people are are experiencing because they still follow the old way of asking God to do something whenever we believe that when He baptizes us in the Holy Ghost, He gives us the ability to do something and we enforce that dominion rather than trying to beg Him to do something. And He said, they still hadn't got that in the States and here it is a hundred years later and we still hadn't got it. And then we wonder. He was, he was 95, you get this, He was 95 years ahead of His time even for today. And He says, we do not pray for God to come and heal as in the old days. But looking into His face, believing that He has baptized us in the Holy Ghost, and that we have received the power of God through that baptism, we command in the name of Jesus the devil and his works to depart. That's the difference. Nevertheless, dear sister, there are instances where God puts the spirit of real intercession even for the sick upon you. Now, I asked people that knew Him what He was talking about there, and they said, it's talking about praying for people at a distance. When you pray for people at a distance, many times you will go into intercession for them to connect. He says, I am convinced that there is a secret and better place of interceding for the sick in exercising a dominion of God over the devil and his sicknesses that when learned by the Pentecostal movement will put the ministry of healing miles in advance of where it is now. Unfortunately, they never learned it. Then he came back to the United States in 1914, started putting it into practice, and started the healing rooms, and had 100,000 healings, and confirmed it, and yet the church still did not pick it up. Then he gives you the secrets. His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Wow, you heard that before, didn't you? Heard it yesterday, this morning, I think. Such as I have, give I thee. And yes, Jesus maketh thee whole. We have never caught the force of Jesus' words to proclaim liberty to the captives. See, we don't, see, you've never heard, most people have never heard the gospel preached, they've heard it offered. But when it's proclaimed, it is not just offered, it is delivered, and you're told you're free, not that you can be free. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It was through the healing of a young man from Detroit, Michigan, in your faith home in Buffalo, that my interest for this ministry was first captured. But it was not until many years afterward, when through the teaching of John Alexander Dowie, that I really grasped the thing, so that the knowledge of the ministry became vital. And it was only after I had received the baptism in the Holy Ghost, that the dominion of God entered my soul, that compelled me to command sickness and the devil to leave rather than to intercede with the Lord to take them away. John G. Lake. That's the secret. That's what you've been learning all week. Is it not? Now all you have to do is pick it up and run with it. Now, there's other aspects and tonight I've got to let you go but tonight we will touch on a couple of things but if you want the the two areas that you might need help in and believe me, I was trying to get all this in here right now. The two areas, though, that you might want, uh, we've got two CDs or DVDs or whatever else it is in there. One is on John G. Lake's Secrets of Spiritual Power, and the other is on John G. Lake's Secrets of Divine Healing. One tells you the, about divine healing, and one is about how to get strong and stay strong. And 
I don't know if we're getting those tonight. We may get a chance to. But it, they're right there in your book. Right? So you can read them. There are 15 things. Get fed up. Treat it all. It's right there at the page before this. And then this page tells you the seven things to do to have power. Okay? So if you do these three pages here, it will work. Use that 15 thing as a checklist. Right? Get yourself ready. Go into it. But know this. If you are baptized in the Holy Ghost... Born of God, obviously, and baptized in the Holy Ghost, you've got everything you need to get the job done. The only ingredient you add, I used to call it the ABCs of divine healing. Availability, boldness, what is consistency, and then determination. Actually, compassion is what I usually use for C. Right? Availability, boldness, compassion, and determination. When you add those ingredients to these things here, it works. Amen? I guarantee it. Now, how many of y'all are coming to the meeting tonight? Let me see your hands. Good, good. All right. Well, we will see you at 7 o'clock. And we will... Yes, sir. Upstairs. Oh, okay. I thought you had a friend. Okay. Yes, one way. Jesus, amen. No. Okay. Yeah, upstairs. Uh, we will see you tonight at 7 o'clock. And we'll pick up from there and see... Because uh, we, we really got it all covered. There are some testimonies I want to give you. And there are some points we'll just cover. But then we'll get started. Amen? Do y'all get anything this week? Are you going to do something with it? That's the key. All right. Then I expect not to get any emergency phone calls from Duluth. I expect you to handle them. And I expect to get testimonies from you. Amen? All right. See you all tonight.